Hey everyone, Ed Helms here. You might know me as Andy from The Office or Stu from The Hangover, or you might know me as the co-founder of BGS. I know, I'm just as surprised as you. They let me co-found something. But here's the thing, we're doing it again. Yeah, this time we're leaping into our other deep love, the vast and vibrant world of country music with something we're calling Good Country. Now this isn't just another newsletter. Think of Good Country as a place. A place where you can explore, learn, and dig into all of what makes country good. Seriously, country music has so much going on these days, and it's coming from so many different deep and soulful places, and we're here to cover all of it. Just as we've done for Bluegrass and Roots Music at BGS for over a decade. So sign up now at goodcountrybgs.substack.com and let us bring you the many sides of country music straight to your inbox. Good country. It's a nice place to be. Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where They've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else. And then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with mm. other women and mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy House, and I'm so happy that you're listening today, that you found us, no matter where you came from. You are welcome here. Before we get into our guest today, the legendary Roseanne Cash, let's talk about some stuff. First of all, I would love it if you would sign up for Basic Folk's newsletter. It's a once-a-month newsletter. And you can do that at the link in show notes, or you can head to basicfolk.com. There is an easy red button that you click that'll sign you up for the newsletter. Thank you very much. Or you can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Basic Folk Pod. We're a listener-supported podcast. If you are listening in real time, like when this podcast gets released – we are fundraising, and you've probably heard some fundraising messages on our social media, in your email, or in our little messages that we have before and in the middle of the episode. Uh, it's a real thing. Um, so if you can swing it, a $5 a month contribution would be awesome. We always have Basic Folk beanies available in our shop that you can get at the link in show notes, or at basicfolk.com. They are hand-knit by my mom, and they have a little Basic Folk tag on them. It's all the rage. 
So thanks. If you can support us, if you already do support us, high five. You're making it happen. Okay, let's get into Roseanne Cash. 30 years ago, Roseanne Cash experienced an all-encompassing transformation. She had just left Nashville, her major label record deal, and her marriage. She was living in New York and found herself falling in love with her producer, the guitarist John Leventhal. Her previous album, Interiors, had set the stage for the new Roseanne. With her landmark album, The Wheel, Cash and Leventhal came together to work on a brand new sound for the artist, who had a well-established career in mainstream country, along with multiple number one radio hits, and she blew it all up for love. Cash had been unhappy and was yearning to live a life of authenticity in her music and her personal life. Three decades later, she's reissued The Wheel and is ready to talk about it. In our conversation, Roseanne addresses the inner critic and how she's come to harness its power for good in the editing process. She took a painting class where she painted a picture of her inner critic and has never looked back. After her divorce, she struggled with motherhood, being a good mom and trying not to ruin her kids' lives. She looks back now with regrets and guilt, as most mothers do. Her saving grace is that she was not a normal mom. We also talk about John's upcoming solo debut album and why the two have established their own record label. Roseanne Cash is a treasure, and I very much appreciated this deep dive into such a pivotal moment into her career and life. We'll take a listen to uh, the title track from The Wheel. This was actually recorded live from Austin City Limits in 1993. So we'll hear a clip of this recording, and then we'll get to our conversation with Roseanne Cash on Basic Folk. How long was I asleep? When did we plan to meet? Have you been waiting long for me? When did the sky turn black? Do you still want me back? I'll pick it all up piece by piece. And the wheel goes round and round And the flame in our souls It will never burn out And the wheel, and the wheel goes round Roseanne Cash, thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm Cindy. It's very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. And I read that you do not like looking back and are not nostalgic for your old work. So thank you in advance for answering all my questions about the early 90s. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Well, this particular project, I am happy to look back, but we'll get to that. Okay, great. Yes. But first, I want to stop by 2017 when you were on the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg that year. That is one of my favorite podcast episodes ever. I especially love your comments about the inner critic, which you call the committee. And you say your inner critic wants a job. If you bring them back for the editing process, they're happy. When did you learn this about the inner critic? How did you see your process and music change after that? And like, what's the committee up to these days? (laughs) Well, 
I mean, I've been a songwriter for a long time, 45 years, and actually longer because, well, I won't even go there, longer. At one point in my songwriting career, I got really sick of the sound of my own voice. I got sick of words. I got, I wanted to just create space and I decided to take a painting class. And in the painting class, I found that the process of painting was identical to the process of songwriting, you know, and then realized that all creative work probably had the same exact process, which is that you get a burst of inspiration or get an idea, you start to build your house, and then at some point you get dismantled by your inner critic or the inner critic wants to dismantle you. You know, it's like, well, this is terrible. Why do I bother? It's not any good. I'll never be any, I'll never be as good as Bob Dylan. So what's the point? Then if you can recognize it and just say, I hear you come back at the end when I'm editing, then it gives space to keep going and you can, you can drive all the way home that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it, when I was in the painting class, I actually painted a picture of what I called the committee, that inner critic, and made a T-shirt out of it. <laughs> I think one of my daughters still has the T-shirt. Um, and so, you know, over time, I just, I, I recognize that it's very predictable, and I don't let the critic dismantle me. Mm. Um, okay, the wheel was a huge shift for you in so many ways. Interiors, the album you released right before kind of like signified a death and the wheel feels like a rebirth. So what mm. had been your experience with rebirth prior to that and how did it impact your relationship to transitions? That's so interesting because the interiors was an ending and it was very dark and kind of heartbreaking to me at least. And then the wheel was transformation. It was this turnstile into a whole other life. Both of them have certain bittersweet qualities to them because endings and beginnings are scary and have their own energy. Yeah. I mean, I think creating these things, like the inspiration that comes from them, helps me to organize my own thoughts and feelings about them. I feel lucky that I'm a writer. It was the same way when I wrote Black Cadillac after my parents died. You know, it's, I considered it a map of mourning and loss and grief. Mm. And that's not just one thing. It's not just grief. It's also fear and anger and even a sense of expansiveness and confusion and stock taking of yourself. So I've learned to uh, pay attention to what I'm writing and um, learn from it. Mm. You were 35 and 37 when these two records came out, which is like the time for that kind of shit to go down. <laughs> yeah. Since you've been revisiting yourself, your relationships and your work at that age, what can you say about yourself back then? Like, What's your report card for 37-year-old Roseanne? Oh, wow. She was so full of um, hope and longing. And at that age, I had the feeling that I think I also had in my 20s and that a lot of people have in their 20s, which is that my whole life opened up ahead of me mm -hmm. and anything was possible. And I found true love at that age. 
man, it was a heady, heady time in my life. It's funny you bring that up because I was looking at the cover of the wheel yesterday. I had to look something up in the new packaging and I looked at the cover and I thought, gosh, I'm just a couple years older than my daughter. And that gave me a sense of compassion and sweetness for her. Right before Interiors came out, you moved your entire life, which meant your kids and your career from Nashville to New York. Mm -hmm. And I read that you worked really hard not to destroy your kids' lives in the process. And I'd like to hear more about your thoughts as a mother during this time. Like, how did you learn to be a good parent during that time? What do you think you did right? What would you do differently? I don't think I was a great parent during that time. I have regrets about my distractions and my being consumed with my own you know, upheaval and how everything was upended in my life. And I do think my kids suffered. I don't know that there's any way around that when people get divorced. But, you know, my saving grace is that I couldn't have loved them more mm -hmm. and that I tried hard. I wasn't a perfect mom. I'm still not. And I'm not a normal mom either, you know. <laughs> so, But I think that I mean, Carrie, my youngest daughter, tells me that, you know, she said, I wouldn't have wanted a normal mom. <laughs> right. So I, I could have done plenty of things better. I could have been more attentive to their sense of upheaval and not just mine. I mean, you know, maternal regrets and maternal mm. guilt are universal. It's just something moms live with and second guessing yourself. And I'm no exception. Seems fun. <laughs> uh, your label didn't like interiors uh, at the time mm. and they weren't they didn't really want anything to do with it and I read this story about you going into your label's office basically to like break up with them and you gave this like huge speech and their response was like we'll miss you goodbye yes was that expected and like what did that experience teach you about your instincts well, I, I didn't expect that. You know, that was exactly, we'll miss you goodbye. I said, you know what I'm doing? It's going to get worse for both of us. And they said, we'll miss you goodbye. I walked out of the room, closed the door, and I, I actually had to lean against the wall for a minute. I was so dizzy. Like, this is, I didn't expect it. This is huge. My whole life is going to change. And I spent three months after that really depressed mm. and not knowing what to do and um, feeling like the very thing I had done that was closest to who I was and myself was rejected. And I didn't ask my dad for advice very often. I wish I had asked him for advice a lot more, but I did ask him for advice then. I said, what should I do? And he said, screw him, move to New York. <laughs> <laughs> nice. He loved New York too. You know, he had an apartment on Central Park South for years. Ugh, so great. And you, you live in Chelsea, right? I live in Chelsea, okay. yeah. Great. Um, when you released The Wheel, your sound, your city, your personal life, your career all changed for the better, it seems. like, But... How did you approach the loss of your old life, particularly for the loss of your old career, which to me, that seems like the scariest 
while like yeah. leaning into all the newness around you? Like, was there a grieving period? What did you learn from that period? There was a long grieving period for all of the losses, you know? It's like, I, I, I gave up a lot and it was scary, but I would have been unhappy the rest of my life because I felt, you know, something opening up for me that was bigger and truer. And I just knew that no matter how scared I was, I had to follow this or else I would be numb and deadened Hmm. for the rest of my life. That's not to say I um, disavowed the work I did before, but I changed, Mm -hmm. you know, there was something else and I had to follow it. And yeah, I did grieve. I grieved for, you know, the divorce and and the loss of that career and the relationships I had there that some of them were ended and destroyed. I grieved for, you know, I I gave up material stuff too. Mm. I mean, I read somewhere after that, that when a woman gets divorced, her you know, she goes into like financial turmoil after that, no matter what. And it was true. You know, everything changed. Wow. I moved from a 6,000 square foot house to a thousand square foot apartment. The wheel was created while you and John were falling in love, and his guitar tone stands out to me as something that was like really different about your music. What did you think of his guitar work at the time, and how have you reflected on it while working on this new 30th anniversary edition? I mean, the way he played was a big part of me falling in love with him, too. I mean, his essence is in the way he plays. And I, I heard that from the very first time I, we were in the studio in um, Electric Lady Studios on, on 8th Street. And he was doing an overdub on Fire of the Newly Alive. And I was sitting at the console and he was standing in the control room to do that overdub. And I just felt this thing come over me like I saw who he was and it was a profound experience and I still feel that when I hear him play I mean I'm so moved when I hear him play it's like it's him you know it's like all of the personality things that you have and the miscommunications you have and I could be so angry at him and then I hear him play and it all falls away. Yeah. That's something else that you were talking with Sharon Salzberg about like experiencing John's essence. Mm. I'm interested in what it's been like for you to be able to reflect on both of your essences at the start of your relationship together with the wheel. Mm. Well, we were trying to find each other then, you know, I was besotted with him and and yet it was confusing and uh my whole past life was like in you know shattered and in pieces and this potential and I had just moved to New York and um and he was at the center of my thoughts and my impulses every day and it took a while to learn how to fit together, both professionally and personally. And we worked hard at it, you know? We we learned how to create music together. We learned how to live together. We had a child together. 
And here we are 30 years later after that album was the turnstile into the rest of my life. Hmm. How did the wheel allow you to feel like an artist again? I felt truer. I felt more true to myself. I was, the songs were all about transformation and um, loss and hope and longing and lust. And it was all real. I mean, I may have overused my nature nature metaphors (laughs) in the songs, but um, they were violent nature metaphors. And in fact, I said that to John when I asked him to produce a record. You know, I said, I have these songs and they're, they're very elemental. And I was meaning they're full of fire and storms and wind and rain and moon. And he said, he was confused. And he said, well, are they good songs? <laughs> I said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, listen, in your defense, nature is very violent. And John announced Rumble Strip Records earlier this year, which is releasing his debut solo record, also titled Rumble Strip, on January 26th, and is the home of the new 30th anniversary version of The Wheel. And I noticed that your records from 1978's Right or Wrong up to The Wheel, which was put out in 93, are now on Rumble Strip. I noticed that on streaming services. So can you get a little businessy and talk about how that happened and why that is a really cool thing for you? Well, my master started returning to me. There were reversion clauses in all of my contracts that I would get them back after 30 or 35 years. And so the Sony- Is that something that you specifically made sure was in the contracts? Well, yeah, my lawyers did. I mean, I now I think that an artist probably wouldn't sign that, that they would either own their masters from the beginning or that they would revert to them much earlier. I mean, 30, 35 years is a long, long time. Yeah. Long time. But that was- Yet here we are. That was, <laughs> and here we are, you know, but that was the trade-off back then. You got money, they held the masters, you know, but I didn't- anticipate how um how it would feel to get my masters back you know that it would was almost a spiritual experience like wow i own this now this is mine and that was the reverse engineering uh reason we started the record label we didn't think oh we'll start a record label and do some fun stuff no the masters came back and we thought we own these we could do something with them and the wheel was never released on vinyl So this is the first time it's going to be on vinyl. Will we see other special edition versions of your past catalog? Indeed, yes. Um, I don't know which ones. I mean, the next thing we have in the pipeline is John's solo record, which is out on January 26th. And I mean, I'm super excited for that. It's a brilliant masterwork. And I think the, the, the pandemic was good to him and that it kind of forced his hand at some, to do something he wanted to do for a long time. So after that, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe interiors, maybe, I don't know. When, so during the pandemic is when he started working on 
rumble strip and it was like pieces here pieces there that he'd been collecting for however long what was the process like for john to to actually like create an album during the pandemic was there a lot of like self-motivation on his part or were you kind of pushing him along the way oh no i i didn't i didn't push beyond when he'd say i don't know if i should do this should i do it uh I only encouraged him to do it. I knew how important it was and that his insecurities about doing it were just the fact that he hadn't done it yet. And he had, he was writing new material and he had decades of ideas of recorded ideas and Mm. pieces of music. And it just, once he got, we have, luckily we have a recording studio um, in the ground floor. And once he got into it, he was just down that tunnel, you know, he was mm-hmm. there. Yeah. It's almost like you gave him a little bit of permission to be like, Hey, now's a good time. Yeah. He just picked yeah. up the. Well, he came to that himself, but I was encouraging. Oh, okay. And you are singing on at least one of the songs. Is that mm, correct? Two songs. Two uh-huh. songs. Okay. What was it? Can you talk about what it was like to work with him on, a project of his own versus him working on your music? I told him he didn't need me. I didn't think he needed my voice on the record at all. I was happy he took the lyrics to um, That's All I Know About Arkansas, something I had written and he, he just latched onto. He liked those. But, I mean, originally I thought there should be no vocals on it because he's such a beautiful composer and musician, you know, it's like, (laughs) why clutter it up with voices? (laughs) But, uh, but yeah, I think Arkansas is, is beautiful and it works and I'm happy to be on it. The Bluegrass Situation, which is our podcast network is starting a new movement called Good Country, where Mm -hmm. they hope to create a space for people who consider themselves country music fans, but don't really fit into that normative narrative. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, Roseanne Cash, what does good country sound like to you? It sounds authentic. It sounds like a real person, a real instrument, a real voice, and uh, minimal enhancement from artificial means and real songwriting, you know. I mean, at one point in the past, I was worried that real songwriting would become like divining water with a stick, you know, just some ancient folk art <laughs> that nobody cared about anymore. But I am so uh, inspired by so many young people, songwriters and musicians. Um, you know, everybody from Billy Strings to uh, Molly Tuttle to um, Jason Isbell. You know, there are some truly great people out there. Brittany Howard, Rhiannon Giddens. It's it's inspiring. Hmm. Oh, I'm glad you named names. I was about to ask. <laughs> hmm. But then, you know, then there are others in, in the pop world who are doing the same thing, who are completely authentic still, like Elvis Costello. And hmm. uh, I was just on the um, this Willie Nelson speech birthday special back in April at the Hollywood Bowl. And there were uh, a lot of artists from a lot of diverse uh, genre. And it was, it was just great. You know, it's just like you realize that good music is good music. It doesn't need a name in a bin at a record store. It's just good. Hmm. 
What's your perspective on how the country music machine has changed like since your time in the 80s when you were being marketed as a mainstream country artist, like particularly for women? Mm-hmm. Like if you could do a state of the union for women in country music. I don't know. You would have to ask somebody who's uh I think you would have to ask somebody who's part of that commercial machinery right now who actually is programmed on country radio. And I don't know that it's changed that much for women. It's still a boys club in a lot of ways. Mm. I think that women have a have to push the rock up the hill just a little bit bigger rock. <laughs> All right. Um, Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Before I let you go, I have a very quick lightning round. Okay. All right. You ready? Here we go. This is the lightning round. Roseanne Cash, who is your favorite birthday twin? Bob Dylan. What is a song you wish you had written? Oh, man. That is an unfair question. Can I only pick one? Only pick one. Masters of War. Oh, God. That's the one. Okay. What is your favorite New York treat? Mmm. Cinnamon babka. (laughs) (laughs) Did you mean food or did you mean some other kind of treat, though? Food, drink. Oh, well, yeah. Italian food and cinnamon babka. What are you drinking before the show? Before the show, just uh, water or apple juice. After the show, glass of wine. What kind of wine are we talking about? Sancerre. usually drink a glass of Sancerre. What is your favorite method of writing in terms of like pen, pencil, typewriter, computer, phone? I start with a uh, pen and paper, and then I usually start transferring to computer or my phone. I have a lot of lyrics on my phone, actually. I like both old and, and new school. I, I think that... You're uh, more critical when it's pen and paper. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of things just look good on the computer that aren't good. (laughs) Who is one author you think everybody should read at least once? Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Oh, good one. You're you're nailing this. What is your favorite scent? Oh, rose. I like a theme. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Love. Love that. Okay, this is the last question. Where is the most beautiful place in the world? The most beautiful place in the world? My bed. Ah. (laughs) That is real. Yeah. (laughs) That's so good. Uh, Roseanne Cash, thank you so much for talking to me and putting up with the connectivity issues. That's all right, Cindy. It was great to talk with you. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy Howes. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can also search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. You can find us wherever you get podcasts, or you can get them on our website, basicfolk.com. If you enjoyed this episode, you could share it with a friend. Like maybe that guy that has helped you move three times, but like can't help you move this time, but he's helping you find other people who can help you to move. He's like a really nice guy and you like kind of blew up at him when he said he couldn't help you move, but you feel like kind of bad about how much you blew up at him. 
So sending that guy this episode might be like um, uh, an olive branch to saying, hey, man, I'm sorry I texted you explicitives with seven exclamation points. Here's this really cool podcast episode with legendary musician Roseanne Cash. And then maybe you guys can once again be friends. Okay, thanks for listening all the way to the end. You mean so much to us and we hold you so dearly in our hearts. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.